I'd just like to take an opportunity to say thank you for being here and listening to me because I'm talking about one of the craziest topics known to man and that's type 1 diabetes and exercise. Why is it crazy? Well, you know from your own practice, people with type 1 diabetes, well, they don't exercise, do they? And the evidence tells us exactly that. So if we look at the 2017 International Consensus Statement on Diabetes and Exercise, it tells us that people with type 1 diabetes are at least as sedentary as the general population. And I'll be talking more about why that is, but why do I have a right to stand here in front of you and talk to you about type 1 and exercise? Well, as you can see, my name is Paul Coker. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 46 years ago, and I've got a master's degree in diabetes practice, but none of that's significant. What's significant is the experiences that I personally have with exercise. So in 2014, I stood on the summit of Kilimanjaro with 17 others who also have type 1 diabetes, making us the largest team of people with type 1 diabetes to summit Kilimanjaro together. But that wasn't enough for me because I'd had type 1 diabetes for 37 years at that point. So how do I celebrate my 40th anniversary? Well, I decided to run 40 half marathons in a single year. The last half marathon, I then decided that I was going to celebrate that by bringing a team of people together with type 1 diabetes and we were going to run a half marathon together. So we had 26 athletes with type 1 running the Swansea half marathon in 2017. And the athletes loved it so much they asked me to do it again even though I was supposed to be retiring from running at that point. So the next year we had 69 athletes with type 1 diabetes come and run the Swansea half marathon with us. And I think Wendy's in the audience over there, she was one of those athletes. And what I want to share with you is the idea that exercise is possible. And I want to share with you the idea that we can't keep fueling the limitations we, and we can't keep fueling insulin if we're going to allow people to exercise. So here's a little bit about me, because of course it wasn't always that good. I've got some, hot, some rather bizarre hobbies. I'm a crazy kind of a guy, I set big goals. So this is me, I think this was 2017, and I'm stood outside the Excel Centre in London, conference centre bigger than this, and along with a team of about 35 other people, we built this fire in the car park. There were 400 tonnes of logs that went onto this fire, and we lit it and we burned it for 15 hours until it reached 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Once it reached 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, we took our shoes and our socks off and we walked across it. Not only did we walk across it, we got 15,000 people to walk across it. And here's the thing, not a single person got burned. How is that possible? And I'm sharing that with you because I want to open your mind to the fact that bold things are possible if we dare to think. So... A couple of pictures here. This is me on Kilimanjaro with my brother. Um, and the picture in the middle is me at the Rock and Roll Half Marathon in Madrid as part of my campaign to run 40 half marathons in a year. And the picture on the right is of the Houses of Parliament. And you can see the night bus from Harry Potter going across that bridge. That's a photo that I took. I love to do night landscape photography in cities. So, anybody in the audience got type 1 diabetes? Great, you're excluded from answering the next question. 
If I asked you to describe a hypo, how would you do it? What tools would you have to do that? I'm not sure after 46 years of living with type 1 diabetes that I have any tools that would enable me to do that. But I think that JK Rowling has a way to do it. Because if you've ever read or watched Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, you'll see that early in that movie and early in that story, Harry Potter's in this subway and he gets visited by the Dementors. And these Dementors, they come along and they suck the life force and the life energy out of him. And afterwards, Harry Potter is left in massive fear. He's a trembling wreck. He doesn't really remember what's happened. He's sitting there at an absolute um, shell of himself. And how does he recover? He has some chocolate. Now tell me, that's not a hypo. So this is the reason why we have the night bus. And that fear that Harry carried with him throughout his life is a fear that those of us with type 1 diabetes are facing on a daily basis in terms of avoiding our hypos. I think that anecdotally at least, we're not that worried about the long-term complications. Yes, that's a fear in the distant future, but actually it's the impact of now in the next half an hour that really worries us. And we do everything that we can to avoid hypos. And that may include not exercising. So here's my diagnosis story in a nutshell. I was five years old. I'd finished my first year at school and we went on a family holiday. My brother Mark's two years older than me and he was bundled in the back of the car with me. Dad was driving, mum was in the front reading the map and we drove 450 miles from Essex to Loch Ness. And I was super excited. We were gonna go and find the Loch Ness monster. But we came back with an entirely different monster. I never did see the Loch Ness monster. In fact, I didn't even see Loch Ness because I was diagnosed with type one diabetes while I was away. In fact, the diagnosis was missed and I ended up in a DKA coma at my diagnosis. Um, and in the early years, treatment was crude. And if I wanted to exercise, this was the advice we were given. Have a Kit Kat and then you'll be fine. Now, I still hear this as a strategy being spoken about in clinics today. And it's because we don't necessarily know any better, but that Kit Kat is only gonna fuel about 10 to 15 minutes of exercise before the hypo strikes. It doesn't work. So we then end up with the Dementors visiting us again. So we then either get excluded from team sports because nobody wants to pick us because who wants Paul on their football team because 15 minutes into the game, he's out of the game for 30 minutes while he's treating a hypo. He's not reliable. Or we just avoid sport and exercise altogether. Now, in my own journey with my diabetes, I was obviously cared for very well by my parents as a child and then I took over for myself. And when I took over for myself, or started to take over for myself, I started to take executive decisions that were not necessarily in my best interest. And this is something I want you to be very aware of. We talk about diabulimia and we talk about eating disorders in type one diabetes. And we talk about people missing insulin. And we only talk about that in the context of eating. We talk about it in terms of losing weight. 
but I'm going to argue that there's another form. It may not be diabulimia in the strictest terms, but I've spoken to a number of clinicians and researchers on this, and they have this aha moment, and I want that aha moment for you. In your clinical practice, have you ever seen children, excuse me, I don't know why my phone is ringing. I thought I was on silent with that, I do apologize. So have you ever had that moment in your clinic where you've met an individual who is taking part in sport and exercise and they are skipping insulin doses to protect their blood glucose levels during their sport and exercise? Have a think about that. Are you, have you got anybody who is living on the threshold of DKA just so that they can participate in the sport and exercise that's important to them. And I say this because I spent 10 years doing that. I was a badminton player from when I was about 13 years old until I was about 21, 22. And I had high hopes. I was being coached by the England captain. I was playing for my county and I was trying out for the England team. And the way that I was avoiding my hypos was I was avoiding insulin because I didn't want it to get in the way and I was training like a demon. I was playing badminton for four or five hours a day, six, seven days a week. And what would happen is I would skip insulin for several days at a time. And then when I knew that DKA was gonna get so bad that it was gonna maybe make me throw up, then I would take a huge great dose of insulin and then I would start skipping insulin again. And that was my strategy because I knew that diabetes doesn't cause hypos, insulin does. So by avoiding the insulin, I was avoiding the hypos. And I think that if you look at any athletes in your clinic, you may start to see that pattern coming through. Now, in my professional career, I'm a project planner and I work on large projects. So this is one that I've been working on and this is the building of the nuclear power station at Hinkley Point C. These are huge, huge projects. And my role as a project planner is to write down what people tell me that they're going to do and then to hold them accountable to that. And I'm the most hated person on site because nobody likes that. And it's a little bit like nobody likes to be held accountable for their blood glucose levels. But most people that don't like the planning aspect, well, they don't participate in the same way that many people don't participate in measuring their blood glucose levels. But from my professional experience, I can tell you that the best thing about failing to plan is that failure comes as a complete surprise. It's not preceded by periods of worry or doubt. And that was me from when I was about 14 or 15 until I was 30. I avoided everything to do with my diabetes. I disengaged from clinic. I disengaged from blood glucose testing. I did not want to know. I wanted to be like everybody else. And then this happened. My daughter was born. This is 2002. This is the day that she was born. But six weeks later, I came home from work and I picked her up to give her a hug. The moment I picked her up, she screamed the house down. She was severely distressed. And then I don't remember what happened next, except that I woke up on the floor covered in coke, not the white stuff. Um, and I'd passed out with a hypo whilst I was holding her. Not only had I passed out with a hypo whilst I was holding her, I was clearly hypo unaware, and I'd driven home from work in quite a severe state of hypo. We didn't have CGM back then, and I still wasn't blood glucose testing, and guess what, having a new baby in the house? Well, that really disrupts your 
patterns in your lifestyle. So I knew then that I had to change and I had to take better care of my diabetes. And that was my pivotal moment. That was when I became really invested in my care. And I started doing all kinds of things, reading all of the research under the sun. I went on to a low carbohydrate diet and then I wanted to offset any cardiovascular risk from that. So I started doing lots of exercise. And I found that as I was exercising more, the low carbohydrate diet didn't fuel my exercise and it certainly didn't fuel my recovery. And whilst I was on a low carbohydrate diet, I climbed Kilimanjaro. Why is this slide advance not working? I climbed Kilimanjaro and I thought that I could be low carb while I was climbing, but it turns out that was not even remotely true. In fact, it pushed me close to the threshold. I was in ketosis, so it pushed me close to the threshold of acidosis. And it meant that small rises in blood glucose level that happen at extreme altitude pushed me close to DKA. Now, I'm still not sure whether I had DKA at the summit of Kilimanjaro or whether it was altitude mountain sickness because the two things are very, very similar. And guess what? At that altitude, any of the testing equipment that we have is not reliable. It doesn't work. But let's get back to this business of the Swansea Half Marathon. So in 2018, we had 69 athletes with type one diabetes come and run. And as part of that, 37 of us took part in an exercise study for XTOD called XTOD 101. Now XTOD is exercise and type one diabetes. And this was one of the first times that we've seen large data collected in real world athletes who are actually performing exercise. And it was quite incredible. What do we know that's a founding principle of type 1 diabetes and exercise? Because the, it's tempting to think that exercise lowers blood glucose level. But it's not quite that true. So yes, given enough time, all exercise will lower your blood glucose level. But if we're exercising in our aerobic zone, so we're walking or we're cycling or we're swimming, and our heart rate is not going up very much, our blood glucose level typically falls quite slowly. And then as we exercise with more intensity and we raise our heart rate into the aerobic zone and towards our, VO, uh, our anaerobic threshold, then our blood glucose level falls very quickly. But once we cross that aerobic threshold and we get to our VO2 max or close to it, our blood glucose level climbs and it climbs fast and it climbs quickly. Now that's happening because we're releasing loads of stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline that are making us insulin resistant. Why am I telling you all of this? It sounds really boring. Well, I'm gonna sum it up with this slide. What we see here is that different exercises affect blood glucose levels in different ways. So we see that cycling, swimming and running are gonna lower blood glucose levels, but at slightly different rates. And we see things that are explosive power exercises like weightlifting and sprinting and pole vault are gonna rise blood glucose levels at different rates. And there's my CGM bleeping, I do apologize. Um, and we see that team sports and high intensity interval training actually tends to keep blood glucose levels fairly constant because what's happening here is we're getting bursts of massive activity that are pushing blood glucose levels up, followed by bursts of rest, which are bringing blood glucose levels down. So we see this averaging of blood glucose levels. Now that's important because 
the number one thing that you can do for your patients who want to go to the gym and exercise is to advise them to change the order of their exercise. Most of us, when we go to the gym, what do we do? We start off with a warm-up. We go for 20 or 30 minutes on the treadmill, and then we do our weights and our resistance work, and then maybe if we're disciplined, we might do some stretching. But what if we do a warm-up and there's fairly short and then do our resistance work and push our blood glucose levels up first and then we finish with the cardio that's going to bring our blood glucose levels down this is probably the most powerful tip that i ever give to any of my clients that i'm working with with their diabetes and i'd encourage you to share it with your patients if that's appropriate so the next thing the hot topic hybrid closed loops you know, we've all seen the nice guidelines coming out. Hybrid closed loops are definitely here and they're here to stay. I've been using a hybrid closed loop since 2017. I started with a DIY um, hybrid closed loop and I've used a number of the commercial systems. And I can tell you that they are awesome, but exercise challenges them because the algorithms are all working on a understanding of your insulin sensitivity but exercise changes insulin sensitivity so, so quickly that the algorithm simply cannot keep up. And I think that there's another problem that we're going to be facing. And that problem is that for people that are doing endurance activities, and by endurance activities, I'm not talking about marathons, although that comes in. I'm not talking about climbing Kilimanjaro. I'm talking about things like doing the decorating. I'm talking about doing the DIY. I'm talking about doing the gardening. What it does is it maintains your blood glucose level so it discounts insulin your blood glucose level is amazing you know you have this amazing unicorn blood glucose level of 5.5 and it'll be there for six seven hours but then you start to feel sick and you think what on earth's going on here and it turns out that this you've created a massive insulin debt the exercise has enabled you to use loads of uh, glucose transporter 4 in the muscles which has brought glucose from outside of the cells to inside of the cells in those muscles but you've now got this insulin debt and you're in DKA with a normal blood glucose level it's not just STLT2 inhibitors that do this exercise will do it too and I think that we're going to see this happening more and more in our clinical experience as we get more and more people on closed loop pumps and it's not a fault of the closed loop pumps it's just something we need to be aware of. We absolutely do need some insulin whilst we're exercising. So we can't be fueling, ex we can't be fueling carbohydrates at the beginning of exercise. We actually need to reduce the background insulin, the basal insulin, for those of us on an insulin peak. What does that look like? Well, typically we'd be looking to reduce insulin on board starting from about 90 minutes before exercise. Ideally, we want people exercising in a fasting state. So. We don't want them eating a meal before they exercise. We want them to actually be without a meal because then they haven't taken a bolus of insulin. There's no bolus on board. And then 90 minutes before we get them exercising, we ideally want them to be reducing their basal insulin by 50 to 80%. Now this is very individual and it will take some work for the individual to find out what's the right measure for them, but this is what the evidence tells us. So 50 to 80% reduction in basal insulin starting 90 minutes before and for the duration of the exercise and then whilst we're exercising we need to be fueling there's no doubt about this we need to be fueling and somewhere between the rate of 30 and 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour of exercise 
but not taking 30 or 60 grams on as one huge slug because that's going to cause a blood glucose spike. What we want to do is we want to average those blood glucose levels. So instead of 30 to 60 grams in a slug, how about we take 15 to 20 grams of um, carbohydrates on every 15 to 20 minutes, but not starting with 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrates at the beginning of exercise unless we're trending to hypo. What we want is the first 15 or 20 minutes to be free exercise and then we start and then we start to fuel and small snacks of carbohydrate without insulin coming on board and continuing the activity and then what we can also do is to build in adv more advanced strategies so the more advanced strategies you saw in my slide previously where we talked about this where we talked about changing the activities so that people do their resistance work or their high intensity workout before they do their low intensity uh, before they do their cardio now even on a half marathon we can do the same what we can do is if we start to see blood glucose levels trending down we can put in a sprint and it doesn't have to be for very long it can be kind of 20 30 40 seconds of sprinting and we can start to see blood glucose level trending back up again and we can do this time and time again providing we catch it before we're already hypo but the thing to be aware of if we're using that as a strategy is we are building up a glucose debt it's a little bit like spending money on your glucose credit card at the end of the exercise session you've built up a, a debt on your glucose credit card and you have to repay that debt or you are going to have a hypo later and that's something we need to be very aware of and talking of hypos later that's another reason that is a barrier for people with type 1 diabetes to, to perform exercise because they can do their exercise they can find these strategies changing the order of their exercise fueling and then eight to ten hours after exercise it's really common for people with type 1 diabetes to go into hyperglycemia and that's caused because the glycogen that we've been storing in our liver and our muscles has been used during our exercise sessions and glycogen's greedy it wants to be replenished it wants to be restored and it's going to be replenished and restored regardless of what your blood glucose level is regardless of what direction your blood glucose is trending in it's just going to grab freely circulating glucose and that means that there's a high risk of hypo especially for nighttime exercise so what do we do about that well there's some simple strategies that we can use so in the first meal after exercise the typical recommendation is a 50% reduction in bolus insulin we often see that people with type 1 diabetes have a big peak in their blood glucose level as a result of their exercise and it's probably related to to this because as you're finishing your exercise and you're pushing it and you're going all guns blazing to get to that finish line or whatever it is in your sport your heart rate's going right up and your blood glucose level goes up and it's really really tempting to put in a great big dose of insulin because everybody wants their unicorn blood glucose level but in this case what we can do is two things one we can do a gentle warm down so that we can actually start drifting that blood glucose level down using exercise as the strategy and if we do need to have a correction of insulin we can reduce that by 50% of our normal correction bolus and that will help to cushion us from hypotes we may not get to the ideal target but that's less important because what we actually want to do is to be in a healthy target range where we're at low risk of hypos and we actually want to encourage that exercise because of all of the benefits including the cardiovascular benefits which of course is particularly important for a population that has 
a four to eight-fold risk of cardiovascular disease over the general population. So the other thing that we can do in that recovery window is to reduce the amount of basal insulin for individuals on an insulin pump. We can't do this so easily on MDI and I don't think there's much evidence to show that it's a useful strategy. But what we can do is to reduce basal insulin for, by 50% for the first eight to 10 hours in the post-exercise window. And this is particularly important if exercise is done in the evening and that eight to 10 hour window means you're gonna be at a risk of a hypo at three or four o'clock in the morning and nobody wants that, least of all the individual. So in doing this, what we start to see is exercise is possible, but we know that exercise is going to increase insulin sensitivity. And I spoke about glucose transporter four a few moments ago. This, uh, this is a glucose transporter that the muscles produce when we start exercising. And once we start producing it, we carry on producing it for about 48 hours, meaning that we're more sensitive to insulin. So if we only exercise once or twice a week, what we see is peaks in insulin sensitivity followed by a trough in insulin sensitivity. And then, so if we exercise on Monday, we see insulin sensitivity, we see insulin sensitivity going up and we see that insulin sensitivity becomes really, really great on Monday and Tuesday. And on Wednesday, it slumps again. And on Thursday, it's back to where it was. And then on Friday, we exercise. And on Friday and Saturday, our insulin sensitivity is really great. And then on Monday, on Sunday, it's starting to slump again. And that makes managing diabetes super, super hard. So if we instead focus on exercising at least once every 48 hours, we move to a more consistent level of insulin sensitivity and that makes things so much easier to manage. So the idea of being able to go and do a five-a-side football once a week with your buddies and not do anything for another week, that's gonna make managing your diabetes super, super challenging. And it doesn't have to be that you play five-a-side or do a half marathon every day or go to the gym every day. Small amounts of exercise really do work. I'm talking, you know, walk the dog. I'm talking about movement for 30 minutes that the public health guidelines tell us we should be doing. And it doesn't have to be vigorous exercise. It just needs to get our heart rate up a little bit. It needs to get us moving. Of course, the fitter you are, the more that you need to do to get the same benefits. But if you're already fit, that's not a problem anyway. So we've discussed hybrid closed loops. And I said that they're challenged by exercise. So what do I do for exercise? I don't think there's any great evidence on hybrid closed loops and exercise yet. I think this is a, a, a world of pain that we're going to experience as the researchers figure this one out. So for me personally, I actually take my pump out of hybrid closed loop mode. I do that two hours before I exercise. I manage my exercise using a 50% reduction in my basal rate in the lead up to the exercise, a 50% reduction in the basal rate during my exercise. And then as soon as the exercise is over, I switch on hybrid closed loop again. And that for me works really, really well. I think the idea that we can use these closed loops to manage exercise is perhaps a little bit ambitious by some of the marketing teams out there. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is what's next. Everybody always asks me this. What are you going to do next? You know, you've done Kilimanjaro, you've done 40 half marathons, you've brought all these athletes together. I'm about service to the diabetes community and I'm going to create the type one Olympic games. This is not going to be an Olympic games about elite athletes. This is going to be an Olympic games about bringing people together to actually take part in physical activity 
and that's an excuse for people with type 1 diabetes to connect with each other and gain the peer support. This is new. I only decided this at the weekend. I already have a uh, stadium promised to me. I already have a pot of cash promised to me. And I already have coaches lined up from the Welsh FA that can help. But I want this to be about more than just football. This is to be about team sports. Because anecdotally, I believe that people with type 1 diabetes don't participate in team sports. They don't want to let the team down. They don't want the hypo on the football pitch and not be picked by their mates because they're the guy that's going to be sitting on the bench at the critical point of the game. So I'm going to build this. It's going to happen. We're setting spring of next year for the inaugural event. It's going to be in South Wales. It's going to focus on that community and we're going to learn from that and then we're going to build the next one and the next one and they're going to get bigger and bigger. So watch this space because you can see already that I have big visions and I've delivered on them in the past. I'm going to deliver on this one. I don't want to sound like a politician, but I have this big dream that we can actually do this and support people with type 1 diabetes. And if you're interested in learning more about my vision or being part of the vision, I'm only too happy to talk to you about it. And I'm also open to all possibilities of what that might look like. This is still very, in its very early stages. So that's, that's the vision. The Type 1 games will also include an area of um, not just participating in the games, not just peer support, but it's going to include um, <clears throat> some training on how to manage blood glucose levels during exercise. And of course, at one bloody drop, I'm already doing that, and that's already recommended by uh, a ABCD Diabetes and by the Diabetes Specialist Nurse Forum. Um, and, and so my work is quite well regarded. Uh, it's also recommended by XTOD. So I've got some, some good credentials here. I've helped people to do some incredible things. Uh, I recently helped an athlete to run the Marathon de Sable with type 1 diabetes, which is one of my proudest moments to help somebody else to achieve such an incredible goal. I don't intend to stop now. I have a mission to serve people with diabetes. Any questions? Obviously they do one test of one post from number eight. Power eight. Hello. I'm a nurse, a registered nurse, and um, thank you for your information. And I learnt a lot about type, uh, di diabetic or diabetes type 1. Oh. I didn't know much about it. I haven't got a headset. I'm sorry, could you repeat that please? Because I don't Yeah, I didn't have I'm a, a registered nurse, uh, surgical regi registered nurse. My name is Julie. Um, thank you for the information you've let out. I never knew much about diabetic type 1 but I've got a lot of um, family members that are type two. Mm -hmm. And the information you've given is quite good. But what I want to know is this information you've given about sports, is it linked to diabetic type two as well? Or is it just for diabetic type ones? Thank you. I think that would very much depend on the treatment modality that the person with type two diabetes is receiving. So if they're on metformin, for example, this would not really relate to them. And if they're on SGLT2 inhibitors, I think we need to be at least cautious because, of course, we've already got a risk of euglycemic DKA on SGLT2 inhibitors. 
and if we've got people that are performing lots and lots of exercise we need i'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, advising them to exercise i think we just need to consider that by exercising and increasing their insulin sensitivity we could put them into that insulin debt and increase the risk of uh euglycemic dka i think there was a study done by that by uh otmar massa and max expert in um in germany uh, and if you connect with me afterwards i'll see if i can find the paper for you i think it's on my laptop um but i think that if we start moving on to insulin and type 2 diabetes then I think that these models become very, very similar, although perhaps not quite the same, depending on which insulin um, model that they're using. Does that help? We've got another question here. Yeah. What, one more question here. This, this guy wants my talent. Do you want to come up and share on the microphone here? I remember you listening to you sometimes, but it was really a very touching story. What I also remember is that when I was in where Mexican sports, and I remember the proper cabin that I went over the bus, and that was in case time to start on the beatings. Yeah, prison. I don't. I don't know how do you, I'm a GP by the way, and how would you advise someone? At the egg where in cup touched it, that they are, uh, you know, teenagers, the whole thing. And it's really critical because sometimes we think that we want a failure and then they're thinking, how do we leave this back? I think that that is all about the language we use about diabetes. The language is all one of judgment. We talk about good control, bad control. We talk about the fear and the long term on patients. Instead, let's change it to how can I help you to manage your instance so you get the results that you want. Let's empower those young people to actually be the same, feel the same, or at least as close as they can be to their peer group, because that's what they want. Yeah, I understand, but well, you know, as, as medics, we are always uh, saying, don't do this, don't, or, yeah, don't do this, don't do that. And I think that's a really big negative interpretation, but there's also the working age. Yeah, and the other thing is, um, like one that involves from the family from the GP where the GP knows the patient. Exactly. So I, I'm I link with you because I link one that with you. Uh, so yeah. okay. my email address is there. We'll, I'll have a chat with you in a minute. We'll exchange details in a little 